open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, as you do so, um, if you're new to us today and if you're a guest, we've uh, started uh, um, reading the Bible together in a different way. On Sunday mornings, we come and we read the Scripture together. And so we'll have it on the screen up there. Uh, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And... Um, so if you uh, are familiar with us, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Go. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. God, what we don't have, would you give? What we don't know, would you uh, impart, Lord? Would you help us to see the glory of Christ through the example of his humility, Lord? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, uh, I love Christmas time. It is uh, it's actually my second favorite holiday next to Thanksgiving. That's another story for another time. But um, I, there's just something about Christmas. And it's not just the day. It's the season. I don't know if it's the lights. I don't know if it's the decorations. I don't know if it's the excitement on my kids' faces. I don't know if it's the school programs. I don't know if it's the church programs. Uh, Whatever it is, it's just a special time of, of year. But if I were honest with you, I would have to say that my favorite part of Christmas is the music. And I would be lying to you if I said I didn't uh, every so often in March, April, or or maybe even August sneak a Christmas album once or twice uh, on my playlist. I just absolutely love Christmas music. Um, I, I, I must drive my wife crazy because I insist on Cool 108 being in the car wherever we go during the Christmas season because I just love uh, Christmas music. I probably uh, drive uh, Denise and Karen in the office crazy with my obsession with Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. It is just a fantastically written song. Uh, Christmas music, there's just something about it. And though there are some really fun, really catchy, really well-written secular Christmas songs, the best songs of the year are those that present and display and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, you would be hard-pressed to find any modern song that has such deep, rich theological truths as you find in many Christmas carols. You can look at Come the Long Expected Jesus, which we sung earlier today. You can look at God Resty Merry Gentlemen. You can look at John Jacob Niles, I Wonder as I Wander, which is not a well-known song, but it should be more so. Or you could look at uh, a, a Christmas uh, carol that was written by Christina Rossetti, a song called Love Came Down at Christmas. And there are just some amazing theological truths that come from uh, those types of songs. But of all those traditional songs, there's probably not one that has more theological depth as Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by John, uh, Charles Wesley, and who was perhaps the most prolific hymn writer in history. The music was set by Felix Mendelssohn, and it starts off theologically simple. Let's look at it together. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And then in the second verse, he gets more theologically dense. Look at that. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold, he come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Hail the flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. So do you sense so far the, the exalted language that Wesley is using to point us to our Lord Jesus Christ? But in verse 3, Wesley perhaps makes his most profound statements. Read it with me. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth, the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Folks, I ask you, where on KTIS are you ever going to hear lyrics as deep and as rich as what Charles Wesley writes here in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But you might be saying to yourself, those are great lyrics, Pastor, but, uh, and I love that song, but what do they have to do with Philippians 2? I mean, Philippians 2 isn't talking about Jesus going to Bethlehem and being born. It's, it doesn't seem like a Christmas text. Well, last week we looked at John chapter 1, and we learned a couple things about Jesus. We learned that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Truly God from eternity past has come in flesh and walked among us. And because of that, he's worthy of our trust. And today, uh, in Philippians 2, Paul looks at the same idea of Jesus' incarnation being God taking on flesh. And he works it out a little bit more. And says that though God was, well, Jesus was truly God, mild he laid his glory by. And because he came and laid his glory by, we can learn to truly live this Christmas. And we do that in two different ways. The first is that we first need to examine Jesus' example of humility. 
examine Jesus' example of humility. Now, you might be wondering, why in your outline does it seem a bit uh, backward? I started with the end of the verse, and then the second point is the beginning. Uh, That's very intentional. In chapter 2, Paul's piggybacking a little bit on his argument in in chapter 1. But in order to understand what Paul is wanting us to be or to do in verses 1 through 4, we have to understand the example that he uses in verses 5 and, 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 and following. Look in verse 5. He says, Have this in mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what are we supposed to have together? And, and what is already ours in Christ Jesus? Well, it's best learned if we look at the life of Jesus. And first notice how Christ emptied himself. Look with me in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, for us uh, English readers, it would be very easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. His argument is is really hinging on this uh, this word form. And when we think of form, we think of how something looks the shape of it. So, for example, if I were to take uh, this, what is this? Well, this is a Bible, right? More fundamentally, it's a book. And it's in the form of the book. You see that there's a cover. You see that there are pages. You see that there, there are ink. There's ink on the pages. Everything that we know when we look at this, this takes on the form of a book. But what are the essential qualities of this thing I have in my hands? Well, it's paper, and, 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 and it's ink, and it's imitation leather. That's the essential qualities of what this is. If you look at these things down here, well, these are candles, right? What are they in the form of? Well, they look like candles. But its essential property is wax and uh, braided, was it cotton? Is that what, what's in the, the wick? I don't know. But those are the essential properties of what this is. Now, in verse 6... Paul talks about Christ coming in the form of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus took on the appearance of a human and that it was just some sort, of, uh, some sort of show. He just looked like a human. Rather, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word morphe. And morphe means exactly the opposite of what we think of as form. Here, morphe means to possess the essential qualities of of something, and it is to have the exact nature, the exact uh, makeup of something. So a better way to read verse 6 would be this. It would be to say that Jesus possessed all the properties and qualities of God. In other words, he is telling us that Jesus was fully God. It's, it's, this verse is, is more complicated when, when Paul says, though he was fully God, in essence... He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Is he saying that that Jesus, he had uh, deity that he could could take hold of if he wanted to and make it his, but he decided not to, to take that upon himself? He couldn't be saying that because he just got done saying that Jesus was fully God in who he was. So this is one of the the trickiest verses in the New Testament uh, to to get our hands around. And it's hotly debated. But 
what it seems to point to is that though Jesus possessed full deity, he did not take advantage of it for personal gain. You think about the, the, the temptation uh, narrative of, of Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus went out into the wilderness and the serpent, uh, Satan, met him out in the wilderness and Jesus is hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. And what, is this, what does he say to Jesus? Well, you see that rock over there? Well, if you're hungry and if you are the Son of God, why don't you make that into a loaf of bread and feed yourself? And Jesus says, uh-uh. I'm not falling for that trick. Why? Because Jesus would not use his deity, his godness, if that's even a word, for personal gain. He had, um, and if he, if he would have followed Satan's advice, he would have never been able to sympathize with our every weakness. He had to go through unbearable temptation. He had to go through everything that we went through in order to sympathize with us. So instead, what did he do? The text tells us that he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? Paul tells us that he took on the form. And there's that word again, the form of a servant. Jesus subtracted from himself by taking on the essential properties of a human. It's a strange sort of math, and you all know how much I like math. That Jesus lost something by gaining flesh. He made himself human. He took on kidneys and lungs and, and, and a mouth and ears and, and, and eyes and a human mind with, with all its limitations. And it would be one thing to take on the essential properties of humanity. It's a whole other thing when you look at the fact that Paul says that he took on the qualities of a servant. Because the word servant there doesn't just mean someone that serves other people. It literally means slave. And a slave in Jesus' time was about the lowest, uh, the lowest rank for any human in Paul's world. So what we need to see here is what scholars call the humiliation of Jesus. Jesus is truly God with all the riches of heaven making himself like one of his creatures. He emptied himself by taking on flesh, taking on the messiness of life. So not only did Jesus empty himself, but notice it also says in verse 8 that he humbled himself through obedience. Look in verse 8 with me. And being found in human form, there it is again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By definition, obedience is usually in most circumstances giving over something that you want to follow something else. Obedience to the law means that you need to give up your desire to go 15 miles over the speed limit to get where you want to go. Obedience to your parents, kids, means giving up a little, not even a little, but giving up what you want in order to follow the commands of what your parents give you. 
And, I, and I, I don't think that it's American rugged individualism that makes us cringe when we think of obedience. I think it's just our sinful flesh. Our sinful desire does not like to give ourselves over to the authority of someone else. Because obedience means that you and I are not number one. That we answer to someone else. And our pride does not want to subjugate ourselves to any institution or person. But Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. And not just obedient into the things that he wanted to. That's still selfishness and it's still only picking and choosing, but rather Jesus was obedient to the point that he was willing to die. And not only just die in general, but die on a cross. And, and if any of you have ever studied what, what the execution method of a cross is, it would make you sick. If I were to choose any sort of execution method for myself, give me a guillotine, give me a firing squad, give me a noose. But don't give me crucifixion. Crucifixion is, is often long and drawn out. It takes days for people usually to die. And as, uh, as people are hanging on a cross, typically their arms would come out of their sockets and they would hang there as long as it takes for them to stop breathing. Oftentimes when they hung there for days, wild animals would come during the night and feast on them. And that would be another way that they would pass away. It is not uncommon to read accounts of birds coming and pecking out the eyes of the people who are hanging on a cross. Eventually, if those things don't kill you, the suffocation from hanging down and not being able to pull yourself up again to take a breath will do you in. But Jesus willingly took orders from God to go through this kind of suffering and death so that you and I can truly live. It is through trust in his obedience, through his service, his life, his death, and his resurrection by which we are made whole. And it was because of him emptying himself and his obedience that we see the ultimate example of humility and service to us. So what does that matter for us in the life of the church and individual Christians today? Well, I believe that Paul illustrates the life of Christ here at Christmas and beyond so that we can secondly strive for unity through humility. Strive for unity through humility. So the question really is, is what do these big, big theological truths about Jesus have to do with Christian unity? It may seem a bit odd, and after such a lengthy discussion, and find that unity is where Paul is going. But he's making it very clear. At Christmas time, we often hear people quoting Luke 2.14. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. 
But did you know that that's a mistranslation? That is not what Luke chapter 2, verse 14 actually says. It gives this idea that at Christmas time, uh, as people of earth, we ought to strive and ask God for this utopian sort of world where everything is fine, where absence of conflict is everywhere, and it's all of our duties to pray that that would happen. That is not what Luke 2.14 says. Rather, Luke 2.14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. There's a big difference between what that says and what we typically hear at Christmas time. Luke 2 here is talking about a peace that's threefold. It's a peace that is brought between us and God when we are reconciled uh, because of our sin. It is talking about uh, spiritual wholeness that is established when we come to Christ in faith. And it's talking about unity between God's people. And it's specifically that that Paul is talking about here in chapter 2. See, in chapter 1, Paul's arguing that Christians should expect persecution and suffering for our faith. In Paul's mind, this is a very good thing because suffering for, the, for, for Christ is the very vehicle by which the spread of the gospel happens most rapidly and more effectively. And Paul understands two things. Most Christians are not down with this idea. That we look at this and say, we don't think we need to suffer for Christ. That doesn't seem, that seems kind of archaic. We don't need that. Paul understands that. And he also understands that the church at Philippi is deeply divided. There are people who aren't getting along. There is competing theologies and such. And so in in chapter 2, Paul encourages the church at Philippi by basically saying, I myself, I'm in prison right now, but the gospel is flourishing here. People are coming to know Christ. People are giving their lives over to Jesus. And if you want to see the gospel flourish in Philippi, and if suffering is to come, then we ought to be unified. So look at how he addresses them in verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now notice what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that the the church at Philippi needs to think exactly like Paul. Unity is never Conformity. Unity is not conformity. But he is saying here that they need to be united in heart. Notice how he says that they are to have the same mind in verse 2. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That is, when they're loving God and when they are loving others, they are unified in heart and mind. So how then do we practice this in the church? How do we on earth peace among those with whom he was pleased? Well, look in verse 3. Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, we just finished a few weeks ago going through the book of Ruth, and in the, the latter part of that book, this was the same truth that we saw before, that we ought to live beyond ourselves. That we don't live for ourselves in the here and now. We rather live for other people. We live for people that are to come and things that are to come. And here, Paul is saying the exact same thing. We don't live for ourselves, but rather we count others more significant than ourselves. So let me ask you this. What would our church look like if we lived this way? That you counted the person that you're sitting next to as more significant than yourself. If you counted the person that's sitting on the other side of the room as more significant than yourself. I think two things would happen. First, we'd have some crazy unity. And I think the community of Mora would take note. And second, we'd see God do some amazing things. What would this look like in your home? What would this look like in your workplace if you counted others more significant than yourselves? What would this look like in a couple weeks when you have to have those awkward parties with the family that you don't see very often and sometimes have a tough time getting through? What would it look like in our community if we valued other people more significantly than ourselves? Well, I need to sit down here, but let me, let me leave you with this. God wants us to be unified, and the only way for us to do that is to become humble, is to humble ourselves. It is to become like Christ, who did not look to his own interest, but counted you and I more significant than himself. Get that. Christ, who was God himself, counted you more significant than himself. He came as God incarnate, not to be served, but to serve. So at Christmas, there is no better gift than we can give to our church than the gift of looking beyond ourselves. In your home, there is no greater gift that you can give to your kids. There is no greater gift that you can give to your parents. There is no greater gift that you can give to your spouse or, or your friends or whatever it is than pouring yourself out completely in service to them. For it is when we display the example of Christ's humility and the pouring out of himself that we can begin to truly build bridges that lead to the gospel going forth. You know, I absolutely love Christmas time, and I do not count Andy Williams as a liar when he said that this is the most wonderful time of the year. He was absolutely right when he sang that. And there are many wonderful things about this time of year. The decorations, the parties, the cookies. Man, I'm telling you what. Uh, and the spirit that's in the air, the lights. Cool 108. Love it. Um, 
the music that exalts Christ. But the most wonderful time of the year forces us to look upon the baby who was mild and laid his glory by. He came not to be served, but to serve. Not to look to his own interests, but to the interests of us helpless sinners. People like you and me. And in response to his living, in response to his dying, in response to his resurrection, we then go to serve others and point them to the glory of Christ. How can you this Christmas take up the torch of the gospel by no longer living for selfish ambition, but counting others more significant than yourself and pointing them to the glory of Christ? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a tough text, not only to just get our minds around and to understand what it is that Paul is talking about. But quite frankly, Father, this is a tough text to live out. Because from the time that we're born to the, where we are now, Lord, we just have this inclination to live for number one. And so, Father, help us this Christmas to follow the call of our King to lose ourself, to follow him, count others as more significant. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing of the glories of Christ?